following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, think back a little bit to your college days, maybe go down to high school or junior high, and how many important speeches from history do you remember? How many important speeches? Maybe none at all. What is so sad is that even the most significant rhetoric ever spoken is easily forgotten. George Washington's farewell address, a classic. FDR's war message. Winston Churchill never, never give up uh, speech. Uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg address. Interesting enough, all famous speeches, and yet... Even though you might remember how Gettysburg Address begins, how's it begin? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers broke forth, blah, 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 blah. That's the part where you kind of fade out. The vast majority really don't know all of it, just the very beginning. And to be honest, most Americans have forgot the precise actual contents of that speech. And 90% of those who do remember the speech have no idea what four score means, right? Right? It means four times 20. Okay, that's what it means. But important words and incredible speeches can be written down. They can actually be carved into marble below a statue, and we'll forget very soon what the purpose of was it. We, we don't even remember its context, but that is not the case with Jesus Christ. How OP amazing is that, right? I mean, think about it. Have you ever stopped to consider how is it that a carpenter's son, or a mason's son, a poor Jew from a nowhere town called Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, uh, who lived fewer years than what is required to be the President of the United States, how is it that his words are as alive today as oxygen? I mean, they are very much as vibrant as the blood flowing through your veins, you can even be someone who doesn't go to church or ever study the Bible, but you're familiar with these terms. And I'm going to test you. As Christians, you're going to know this. It's not going to be that challenging. Some phraseology from the Sermon on the Mount. And you complete the sentence, right? Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, you what? Turn the other cheek, all right? Our Father who art in heaven. Uh, no one can serve, how many masters? Two. Do not judge so that you will not be what? Judged. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the what? Log in your own eye. I mean, these words are in the fabric of society. They're not necessarily chilled and chiseled in stone, but they are part of just who we are. Even in a declining culture that is anti-Christian, they still know these words. The teaching of the great king is unforgettable compared to all the other speeches that you know. And that's why you've got to open your Bibles right now to Matthew chapter 5. If you're not there, we're going to be working our way for the next, here this month, all the way through May, the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to take us that long to exposit, to draw out all the truth. And we're introducing it today with verses 1 and 2. But I wanted to ask the question right up front. What's driving this sermon? What's driving it? Well, the king's message here is actually a reaffirmation of the entire Old Testament. 
it's not really teaching you new things. It's reiterating what we know to be true from the Old Testament. But here's the problem. By the time Jesus enters into history in the first century, the message of the Old Testament in the Jewish population and the Jewish religion has been messed up or lost completely. Throughout the history of the Jews in the Old Testament, there were times when they lost track of God's Word. Are you with me on that? We could go to example after example. They just lost it, and then it was brought back to them. Well, Jesus is now going to clarify what Moses and David and the prophets taught in the Old Testament, but sadly, in the Jewish faith, they had moved from the specific teaching of the Old Testament, God's law, to the application of those laws called the external or oral tradition. It had been what the rabbis said this passage means and this passage means and this passage means. So many layers on that, they they had lost sight of the actual principle. So the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, this sermon, is going to violently attack that traditional uh, perspective, that external perspective. He's going to take it off the externals and drive it right back to the internal drive of the heart, the transition and transformation of your soul. And so the Old Testament, you know, I think you know this, was designed to guide the Jewish nation to rely on God's grace, God's mercy, and to cry out for His salvation. That's what it was designed for, the law. But over time, spiritual leaders, very sincere, warped the law into steps to achieving salvation. In their zeal, To apply the law, they added thousands of applications to the law called the oral tradition, very strong, and that everyone needed to obey to secure their own salvation, get this now, by human achievement. In fact, even though Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the the, the original Jew, uh, even he, very clearly in the book of Genesis, is saved by faith, right? Uh, Abraham was made righteous by, answer, faith. It's very clear. And yet, even though that's true, what you have is that the current Jewish faith currently taught that justification or salvation was actually achieved by obedience to the law, obedience to all the oral tradition, which was overwhelming, and obedience to circumcision and keeping the Jewish holidays and the festivals, etc. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to undo that distortion. The distortion of salvation by works, which is the same of every other religion on planet earth. Salvation by works. You do it. He's going to restore salvation by God's grace, which means God does it, God gifts it, and it's through faith. Like Abraham, Abraham was justified by faith. But this is not an easy task. I mean, it has become so complicated in the Jewish faith and religious life that Judaism was so demanding that people, even if we were to have, say you now obey all this oral tradition, you would respond differently to it. And there would be probably the same kind of response that we find back then in the first century. And there are four major responses and shades in between them all, but I want to give you the categories. You probably know them. They responded by becoming Pharisaic, or the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, 
and the Zealots. Let me say those four groups again. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Those were various approaches to Judaism in the first century. Let's look at each group. This is very important you understand this because this is underneath the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he's addressing. The Pharisees believed that right religion consisted of obeying the laws and religious traditions. Now, there's a big difference. I like the Pharisees because they want to obey the law, but they're going to obey it in their strength. And they're going to say that I'm going to earn salvation by keeping this, when actually the truth is you've got to depend on God for salvation. Then he gives you a new heart that wants to follow his word. Does that make sense? The Pharisees had it. We're going to do it. And their primary concern, because they were so concerned about salvation, was the fastidious observations of the Mosaic law, following every minute detail of the applications of those laws, which were designed by men called, and to get this right, that was the oral tradition, which were developed. They were handed down by various rabbis over the centuries. They were completely focused on obeying the laws and traditions of the past in order to secure salvation. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they focused on the present. They were the religious liberals of their day who minimized anything supernatural. So, you know, nothing really supernatural happens. And what they did is they adjusted and they modified God's law so it was easier for them to obey. So the Pharisees are being really, you know, diligent about every nuance and every specific oral tradition. The Sadducees are like, I just love people. You know, very general The Essenes were the ascetics. They were the monks of their day. They believed that right religion meant, write this down, separation from the rest of society. That was real religion. They led austere lives in remote barren places such as Qumran at the edge of the Dead Sea out down there in the desert. The Zealots, the fourth category, were fanatical nationalists who believe that right religion centered around radical political activism. They, these zealots, looked down on all their fellow Jews because those fellow Jews would not take up arms against Rome. And so they thought they were above that. They thought that was the answer. Now, all these categories, nobody was ever clean. There was usually modification. You know, they're part zealot, part scene, whatever. But they're, they're basically these four approaches going on. In essence, let me summarize it. The Pharisees said, go back to the traditions, you know, to the original law. The Sadducees would say, go ahead, just ignore it and just live. The Essenes would say, go away. And the Zealots would say, go against. Okay? Uh, The Pharisees were the traditionalists. The Sadducees were the modernists. Uh, The Essenes were the isolationists. And the zealots were the activists, okay? That's what they were. Now, there are two things that are true with all four groups, all right? One thing that's true about them is they were all working their way to heaven in their own strength, trying to earn salvation their own way by isolation, by keeping the law, by just being generally loving, etc. They were trying to earn their salvation by human achievement. We're going to do it ourselves. The second thing that's true is that each one of these groups has a modern counterpart today. And so you got to ask yourself, which one are you most like? Okay, are you ready for this? 
Today, the Pharisees are seen in your favorite legalists. You know them by, well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. There you go. These are hardcore so-called believers who are so rigid, you know what they lost? Love and life. Both of those. No card playing, no dancing, no drinking, no long hair for men, no pants for women, and it goes on and on and on and on today. They add extra practices to God's Word. They're not found in God's Word in order to prove that they're saved, in order to appear to others that they're godly. The Sadducees, what's their modern, you know, you know emulation today? Well, they're the liberals of our day. They're the people who would say, you know, there's really no substitutionary atonement. It's just love Jesus. Uh, They're the ones who alter the gospel message to fit their own desires, uh, their own thinking. They're the ones who get in their churches, you know, ear ticklers to make you feel good. They're like country music award winners who say, I want to thank Jesus for my award here. Why is it all this Southern? I don't understand why I'm picking on this Southern. Okay. I want to thank him for that while they're living with their boyfriend or they're shacking up with their girlfriend, you know, and, and it, there's an inconsistency there. Uh, so they're the, the liberals. Uh, the Essenes are say, seen today with the isolationists of our day. Uh, the home church movement is uh, sometimes a part of the isolationist. Family compounds. We're going to buy a big piece of property. We're all going to live big, a big fence and wall around us. That kind of thing. The incensed, radical, never interact with anybody, homeschoolers. Not all homeschoolers, but the crazy ones. The, the other world seclusionists, okay? That's, that's the isolationists of our day. The zealots. Who are they today? The Christian nationalists. The maniacal magas. Uh, the vehement voters. The conservatives who believe that political activism is the Christian answer to a declining culture. So every one of those, which one are you most like? Jesus' unforgettable teaching in the Sermon on the Mount destroys every single one of those practices. He steers them back to the truth of God's Word. To the Pharisees, he says true spirituality is internal, not what? External. To the Sadducees, he says it's God's way revealed in His Word Taking it for what it means by what it said, not man's way. You don't invent your own form of Christianity, Sadducees. You submit to the Christianity that's been revealed in God's Word. To the Essenes, Christ says it's a matter of the heart, not your location. You can't run from who you are. You need to be transformed internally. And to the Zealots, Christ says it's a matter of redemption not revolution. It's a matter of the gospel, not rebellion. So the central thrust of Christ's Sermon on the Mount to every person, no matter what their inclination, what matter four groups they belong to or which one or combination thereof, the way to the kingdom, first and foremost, is a matter of the, answer, heart. Matter of the heart, the inner person. And that's the central focus of the Sermon on the Mount. When we, as we get to it and as we unfold it now every week from now all the way to May, true religion in God's kingdom is not a question of ritual. It's not a question of philosophy or location or military might. It's a new born again heart that changes you internally that then causes 
Christ to be manifested through you externally. You've got to be perfect before God to be saved. Are you getting that? Is God perfect, yes or no? To be in His presence, you have to be perfect. You can't be perfect. Only Christ can cover you with His perfect righteousness so you can enter His presence. Are you getting that? So, understand, your sin falls on Christ when you respond to Him by grace through faith. His righteousness covers you and now you're made perfect so you can enter to God's presence and be in relationship with Him. You have to be transformed to follow God. You can't do this in your own strength and only Christ can give you a new heart to do so. So that's what makes the Sermon on the Mount so important to you, to me, and every believer in every age. This sermon is going to do several things for us. Are you ready? Let me give you four major things. One, it's going to tell you the necessity of the new birth. Listen, let me make it really clear. Can you save yourself? Yes or no? No. Can you live the Christian life in your own strength? Yes or no? No. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to do. It's going to drive you to dependence upon Christ for salvation, and it's going to drive you to dependence upon His Spirit to live out your Christian faith. It's going to do that. The second thing the Sermon on the Mount is going to give you is God's pattern for happiness. God's pattern for success. The sermon reveals the God-empowered objectives and motivations that lead to the way of joy and peace and contentment. This is the way. This is the way that Christ lays out for you to actually truly be happy. The third thing the Sermon on the Mount is going to do is it's going to give you the greatest scriptural resource for reaching others for Christ. This sermon, when you begin to live by it, when you begin to talk like this sermon, what's going to do, it's going to make you wonderfully different than our culture and extremely, spectacularly attractive to many who are enslaved to sin and who are abused by this world. Those who see sin beating them up are going to go, I want what you have. They're going to see it. And the fourth thing that this sermon is going to do, the Christian who seeks to live by this Sermon on the Mount achieves the highest goal of all, which is that to live a life that is pleasing to God. It's going to allow you to do that. So, How does the Lord begin this incredible sermon? We're going to look at two verses today, very briefly, verses 1 and 2, and then we're diving into the Beatitudes next week. Verse 1, what's he say? Chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened up his mouth and began to teach them, saying, stop there, here's the summary, Sermon on the Mount, you ready? It's meant to destroy all human effort and demand God dependence. Demand it. So let's take a look at it. Number one in your outline, the setting. The setting for the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, right before that, the context in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, it informs us that the Lord's miracles had drawn crowds And it was from everywhere. Galilee, Syria, Decapolis, the ten cities in the north, Jerusalem in the south, Judea in the south, even beyond that, beyond the Jordan and and east. This group was so large, it had super diverse backgrounds, many differing beliefs, 
uh, unique life experiences, distinct struggles, differing commitments to spiritual things. And amazingly, at the Sermon on the Mount, there's men and women, there's young, there's old, there's male, there's female, there's religious, there's rebellious, all these different types. And yet, to this diverse crowd, Christ taught this unique sermon which would draw any one of them from any background, any orientation to the one true God. You know what that tells me? Again, don't ever forget this, that God's truths transcend language, culture, gender, age, time, class, no matter what your background. This truth is truth for any person from any background. Can I hear an amen to that? It is. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to destroy your efforts to get right with God, to walk with God, and to cause you to be God-dependent in every way. Verse 1, what's he say? Jesus saw the crowds. Now that's talking about multitudes of people are here in Capernaum at the side of the Lake of Galilee, and Jesus is concerned about multitudes. Why is he concerned about crowds? Because crowds are made up of what? People. And Christ loves people. God loves people and He wants to assist them, to love them, to care for them, no matter if they're downcast and distressed, Matthew 9, whether they're sick, Matthew 14, whether they're hungry, Matthew 15, or in any need, whether they're physically healthy or they're physically ill, emotionally stable or demon-possessed, financially poor or rich, doesn't matter, politically oppressed or powerful, religiously insignificant or influential, intellectually ignorant or educated, our Lord is compassionate towards them, which means He's also compassionate towards you. He cares about people. He cares about your situation right now where you're at. You can pour your heart out at Him, 1 Peter 5, 7, because He cares for you. You pour that out to Him. And when people saw Jesus, you know what they saw? They saw a rabbi totally unique because he involved with everyday people. The rabbis only hung out with the rich and the powerful. Jesus hangs out with just everyday folk. You know what? They were blown away because Jesus wouldn't shoo the children away. He actually would meet with them and love them, and that blew them away. They saw his incredible, miracle-working power. They heard his unforgettable teaching. And so the crowds didn't just go away. They followed him to Capernaum, and they're now sitting there wanting to hear the Sermon on the Mount. From where? So there's thousands, I believe, people who are listening to this sermon, and the crowd heard everything that Christ said, and they were so blown away by his authority to speak God's word directly. That's a big deal. We don't sense that, but he knew that, and you should understand his intention was to drive every single person present to recognize their sin and their desperate need for a Savior. Desperate need. And until they believed in Christ, you got to get this, the demands of this sermon could only show them how far they were from God and how deep they were trapped and condemned by their sin. Did you get that? Let me say it again. Until they believed in Christ, this sermon is only going to show them how far they are from God and how deep they're trapped and condemned by their sin. This is a masterful, evangelical, evangelistic sermon designed to confront people with their desperate condition of sinfulness and their status before a holy God. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to destroy their human efforts 
and to cause them to be dependent upon Christ and dependent upon the Spirit of God for every single person. In fact, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones brilliantly emphasizes that this sermon is for every believer, not just special Christians and super Christians and mature Christians and serious Christians, all Christians, not just for elders and pastors and teachers and preachers and disciples, but every genuine believer. It's not for Hudson Taylor or George Mueller or any other significant missionary in the past or present, but every born-again follower. And it is truth that is designed to be lived out by every person and every single principle in the sermon is for every single person. Are you getting it? Are there parts of the Sermon on the Mount that are not for you? The answer is no. It's for every believer. And even though no truth found on the Sermon on the Mount is easy or natural to respond to, all who have a born-again nature and enjoy the indwelling Holy Spirit can actually live these truths out. Not perfectly, but progressively. And though the people of the world will mock these truths of the Sermon on the Mount, the genuine Christian, if you are saved, you will want to obey this 24-7. You will want to apply them in everyday life. Which leads us to point number two in your outline, the scene. Let's take a look at the scene here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, remember who's giving this sermon. This is God the Son. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is God incarnate, made flesh, who created you, created the universe, is now speaking this greatest of all sermons. The greatest preacher who ever lived preached the greatest sermon ever preached. And when he concluded... This is how they responded. Take a look at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. The multitudes were what? Amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Listen, Christ quoted no sources, no ancient rabbis, no tradition. When he spoke, he spoke of his own authority. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you ready? But I say to you, no rabbi ever did that. Whenever a rabbi taught, he would quote several rabbis. Rabbi Liverwurst says this, you know, and he would say this, and he goes, this is why we know, and he would apply that because they'd be quoting one another. Jesus didn't do that. He taught it all, and he quoted his own authority. He's quoting God's word on a giant hill in Capernaum next to the Sea of Galilee. Look, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, it helps us to understand that the word mountain there is actually can also be in the Greek language. It's either mountain or hill, and it really was a rather large hill. The worship center for the greatest sermon that was ever preached is a giant hill that slopes up from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Today, the traditional site is the Mount of Beatitudes. Now understand, all my instructors and myself, I deeply believe this, it's actually the hill next door to the Mount of Beatitudes. There's one hill, and then there's another hill next to it. You say, why is it the hill next to it? Because that hill has supernatural acoustics. I've told you this before. You can actually be at the bottom and whisper. And you can hear you, I'm not exaggerating, 200 yards away. It's like an acoustical, magical hill. It must have been there, because there are thousands of people, and he is 
teaching them the word. And the exact spot is not the issue. It is a beautiful lakeside Capernaum. I want you to see the picture of the most beautiful woman in the world. There she is next to me. I married her. She's still married to me. She's my geisha through my surgery. Uh, She's amazing. But that's, I couldn't remove us from the picture. That was the point. Uh, Behind us, you see the Sea of Galilee. You see the hills in the background. You can almost smell the breeze, right? And the flowers and feel that going through. It's, It's a gorgeous place. It's one of my favorite places on planet Earth. It is so serene and picturesque. But you can almost see and hear as Jesus took a seat on the edge of that ridge and faced potentially thousands of people, this is the providentially designed hill which carries his voice to the ears and hearts of his listeners and does so today as well. Leading us to number three in your outline, on the back side of your outline, the style. The style. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up from the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, a rabbi commonly sat down when he taught. When he stood and when he walked around talking with them, that was informal teaching. But, I've always wanted to sit on a throne, so here we go. When he literally, look at the text, when he sat down, they knew that now this was going to be the most authoritative And the most important thing that he was going to say. Because as soon as he does, what happens? The disciples come and sit around him. And the the, the crowd, the multitude, settles down to listen. So I feel that right now, from this point on, I should sit down when I preach every Sunday. And I'm going to do it like this, right? Yeah. Okay, no, I'm not. You can see how that could be a cultural problem, right? So understand it was a different culture. And when they saw him sit down, they knew that now this is going to be significant, his most important preaching, his most important principles. And you know what's interesting today? Even today, we carry that into our English-speaking world. We speak of a professor's holding a chair in a university. That's where that comes from, signifying the honored position from which they teach. So Jesus sits down, he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And he spoke from his divine chair with the absolute authority of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Get this. The multitudes here. This is really crucial. But understand the standards that Christ is about to speak about your spiritual life that he gives on the Sermon on the Mount. Are you ready? This is going to be hard. Could not apply to them. Nor could they follow them. Unless they belong to him. Are you getting this? Notice the disciples were a part of the Christ audience. And they're most likely more than just the inner circle, more than Peter, James, and John and his 12. Because the reaction recorded in Matthew chapter 7 verse 28 is amazement. This unforgettable message that Christ has given at the end of chapter 7 is new to the crowds and new to even some of the inner circle. First time they've heard this. But it's only the twelve who could know the blessedness of what Christ is teaching here and what he spoke. And follow the perfect way of righteousness which Christ sets forth, though they would follow it imperfectly. They had the ability to understand its full measure and also to be able to apply it. But if they weren't a part of his family, they don't have the power to pull this off. 
The disciples are the only ones who have partaken of Christ's internal divine power through His Spirit, which is absolutely necessary for obeying God's Word and finding His perfect will. The sermon not only showed the multitudes of the standard of God's righteousness that they could not keep on their own, but it showed the disciples the possible standard that now they could keep because of Christ's coming and their faith only in Him. Are you getting this? You can't earn your salvation. God must do that to you. But once He does, He gives you a heart that wants to obey and you can begin to apply the truth of the Sermon on the Mount. You follow me? You can't do it this side of salvation, but once saved, you can begin to make progress in that process. So trying to apply Jesus' teaching without receiving Him as Lord and Savior is futile. Futile. I get people all the time, oh, Jesus, great teacher. Oh, great teacher, great teacher. You know what? That, that's cornball, okay? That, that's ridiculous because you can't say that he's a great teacher because you can't follow anything he might say unless you're in him. And those who promote a social gospel today, endeavoring to institute Dreis' teaching apart from his regenerating work, prove only that his principles cannot work for those who do not have a transformed nature or the indwelling Holy Spirit. Can't do it. You cannot behave like Christ until you become like Christ. And those who don't love the king cannot live like the king. Are you getting this? you got to be saved to live this out. you got to be born again, changed internally. It's not an external thing. And the Sermon on the Mount is meant for you to be destroyed in all your efforts to be right with God and cause you to be dependent upon God himself. Leading us to the final point, number four, the subject. The subject. Christ, verse 2, in Matthew chapter 5, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... Now, this seems almost unnecessary. Why does Matthew mention Christ opening his mouth and beginning to teach? Now, this is my job, uh, and hopefully it's your job too, but sometimes there's phraseology, and you're like, why did he say this? I don't get it. So I had to dig and dig and dig it, and you know what I found? I found that this phraseology is a common idiom used in the first century to introduce a message that is especially important. When it says he opened his mouth and began to teach, that's to indicate this is heartfelt, this is testimony, this is sharing. These are principles that are both authoritative and intimate. Write that down. Authoritative and intimate. Lord and love. It was given in the utmost importance. It was delivered with the utmost concern. And in this summer, and you know, as we come out of summer, we get into fall, this sermon that we're going to be studying Our Lord is going to establish a standard of living counter to anything the world has ever known. It is different from everything the world practices and values. Listen, you follow the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to be different than all the people around you. To live the standards that Christ gives here is to live a life of, in addition, blessed happiness. We're going to get that next week in the Beatitudes, but here is an utterly new approach to living, one that results in joy instead of despair, peace instead of conflict, a peace that the world knows nothing about. They can't even understand it. They can't have it because they're not in Christ. Coming next week will be a blessedness not produced by the world or your circumstances, nor can it be taken away by the world or your circumstances. It is a blessedness that is not produced externally by your efforts, nor can it be destroyed externally by anybody else. It is internal internal. It is eternal. It is transformational, and it leads to heavenly bliss now and forever. 
That's what this term and this sermon is going to do. But only if we are willing to have God destroy all human effort and we rely completely on his work, his power, and his presence alone. So what I want you to do is take this home with me. That's what that alarm means that just went off. I have some lengthy application. I wanted to be just like the rabbis, give you some lengthy application. So follow Jesus, and following him means the Sermon on the Mount, letter A, is for you. It's for you, right now. Now, because of its seemingly difficult standards, there are some, they call them scholars, I don't, but they believe that the Sermon on the Mount is not meant for you, it's meant for people in the coming thousand-year millennium kingdom. It's not for you, it's meant for the kingdom, the millennium, in the future. And they would say the reason for that is because Jesus' standard, what he teaches, is that you have to be perfect. And he says in 548, as your heavenly Father is perfect in heaven, you need to be perfect. And they're saying, nobody can be perfect, so this can't mean us. It's got to mean some future generation. Now, there's a problem with that, a big problem. The belief that the Sermon on the Mount is not for today is incorrect for several reasons. Please pay attention. First, the text does not indicate or even imply these teachings are for another age. Jesus at no point says, you know, this is not for you guys. This is for the future kingdom. Never says that. Secondly, in Capernaum, Jesus is now calling obedience from a multitude, thousands of people who are not living in the millennium. That's significant. Are you with me on that? He's teaching them right here. I want you to obey these truths. They're not in the millennium. So therefore, it can't be intended for the millennium. Third, many teachings themselves become meaningless in the Sermon on the Mount if they're applied to the millennium. Like chapter 5 verse 10. It says about persecution, and understand, we know from the scriptures elsewhere, there's no persecution of believers in the millennium. Fourthly, every principle, get this, every single one that we're going to study in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is found elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's not intended to be applied to the future, but believers in this age. So every truth in the Sermon on the Mount is found elsewhere in the New Testament that applies to everyday Christians like you and I right now. Are you tracking with me? So that tells us it's not for the future. And the fifthly, there are many New Testament passages that command equally impossible standards which unglorified human strength cannot continually or ever achieve ongoingly. And so the Sermon on the Mount and its teachings are for all believers today. Let me make it personal for each one of you. This is for you, specifically, marking a distinctive lifestyle, which is to characterize the direction of your life, write it down, not the perfection of your life. It's where you're headed. You will want to do this. You want to apply this. You want to live this out. This sermon is what Christ can produce in you through His indwelling Holy Spirit. Letter B, following Jesus means you live morally like Christ. This is lost in our generation, so I want to emphasize this, because Christ does. Trying to apply Christ's teaching without receiving Christ as Lord and Savior is futile. You cannot live the truths of the Sermon on the Mount unless you're in Christ. You cannot behave like Christ until you become like Christ. You cannot behave like Christ until you're born again by Christ. Now, who knows more about the product than the manufacturer? Okay, guys, right? You get a drill, 
you get a power tool. Maybe, if you're young, you throw the instructions away. Yeah, as you get a little older, you're going, maybe I ought to glance through that just to make sure I know how it's used, how it's not used, how it's best used, how it will be effective, how it will be ineffective. I want to take care of it, what it does, what it doesn't do, its limitations, etc. You read the instructions from the manufacturer. God is the same. God made every human being in this room. Look at the person next to you right now, quick. God made that person. He did. And you. And yet, so few people turn to the Lord and His Word to find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in their lives to learn how to live, how they take care of themselves, how they can function properly and happily as they were designed by their Maker to do. Sermon on the Mount is clear. Get this, please. Internal transformation results in external changes. Internal transformation results in external changes. When our internal attitudes and thinking are corrected through genuine conversion in Christ, our actions fall in line. Uh, If uh, your inner life does not make your outer life better, then your inner life is deficient or non-existent. James chapter 2 verse 20. Faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. Ephesians 2.10. Paul says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand already before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. But that outside life can only be produced from a true transformed inner life. But Christ does expect our outward behavior to transform. How do I know that? How do I know that he expects our outward behavior to transform? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, there are 50 commands. 50 imperatives about lust and anger, honesty, prayer, indicative, uh, uh, giving, uh, worry, loving our enemies and more uh, for us to dependently obey. And this sermon was meant to change your heart, which will radically affect your everyday life. Based on the indicatives of the fact of what God has done, you should be living the commands differently. Uh, Can I be very bold? We're going to study this starting this Sunday, or actually the last couple weeks, all the way to May. And if you're the same person you are in May than you are today, then something's wrong. This sermon is meant to transform my life and your life. This sermon is also never to be a pick and choose. You know what that is, right? You pick what you like, you reject what you don't, like a, like a four-year-old picks jello over broccoli. You know what I'm saying? Every aspect of the morality of the Sermon on the Mount reflects God's character, God's morality. Therefore, if you cannot embrace certain truths you prefer and then reject other truths you don't. Let me be specific. You can't embrace his teaching on loving others, then reject his instruction on divorce. You cannot accept his teaching on speaking honestly, then discard his instruction on giving. You cannot adopt his instruction of don't judge others and then ignore that you will stand before Christ as your judge. Sermon on the Mount demands that you respond obediently to Christ as your Lord, Master, King, Ruler. Just as Matthew 28, 18. Write that down. Again, just so you know, he, Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Who has all authority? 
Jesus. Did we give Him that authority? No. It was His authority from the beginning of all time and prior to time. It's been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is your Lord. And this sermon is expressing His will. It's will. You can only rightly embrace this sermon by turning from your sin and repentance and depending on Christ by faith in true born-again salvation and then following Christ in humble, dependent obedience that's all in. You're all in. Letter C. Letter C. Following Christ means you don't live politically correct. Jesus is not PC. The biggest quagmire of our culture today is exclusivity. I can say almost anything about Jesus to anyone, like, oh, he's my personal savior. Oh, I'm so glad that works for you. Uh, Jesus loves the little children. Oh, yes, he does, doesn't he? Jesus walked on water. Well, you know, I could say all that. But you know what PC culture does not want me to say? Christ is the only way to God. I can't say what Christ said. If you don't know me, Jesus said, then you don't know my Father in heaven. That may sound arrogant, but it's not any more arrogant and any less exclusive than the person who says, oh, I think all religions are the same. Or I think every religion has some truth, but not all of it. Or I think everyone's going to heaven. Or Arnold Schwarzenegger recently said, I think when you die, that's it. Okay? (laughs) Now, why do I say that? What's the problem with that? It's who said it. You said it. You are the authority. You're making that claim about all religions. Nobody else. And who are you to say such things? I'm serious. Now think about this. I have three choices as I see it. I can believe you or somebody like you, another human being. Number two, I can believe myself and make up my own form of Christianity. That's number two option. Number three option, I can believe Jesus and what he said. And you know what he said? He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one will come to Christ, come to God except through me. They'll never come to the Father except through me. No one. His teaching is true. And that means every Muslim, every Hindu, every Catholic trusting in the sacraments to be saved is not going to heaven. Every single one. Jesus alone is right. And he is unforgettable. Letter D. Following Jesus means you must be transformed in salvation. You must be transformed. Don't put your notes away. Now, who is the Lord? Who is your Lord? Is it the experts? The scientists? The political leaders? I know, it's got to be Dr. Fauci, right? That's, that's, your, that's your Lord. Your feelings, yeah, that's your Lord. You just go by your feelings, right? I've got a feeling, love guides me. A moral uh, idea of right and wrong. What guides you? What's your Lord? What guides you? Is it you? Is it someone else? Is it a place, a thing, whatever? Or is it Christ is your Lord? Really? Christ, does he truly call all the shots in everything in your life? Where you shop, how you dress, who your friends are, where you go, what you like, everything. Everything. Who's my Lord? Jesus Christ is my Lord. Because He is the Lord, whether I affirm His Lordship or not. 
he is Lord, no matter if I make him Lord. I don't make him Lord. He already is Lord. Whether I believe he is or not, he has authority over heaven and earth, which includes me, my ideas, my itty-bitty brain, my tainted heart, my dirty hands. Christ is Lord. I didn't claim that for them, him. I simply acknowledge he's Lord, and I live by that. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. And I don't know exactly the date, but somewhere in a three-month period of time, I knew that I was born again. But at 18, after I had lived exactly how Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount not to live, I was a whitewashed tomb. I was clean on the outside. I was full of dead men's bones on the inside. I looked alive, but I was not alive. For four years, I went to church. I didn't know Christ. I did what I wanted while claiming to be a Christian. I would occasionally pray. I'd read the Bible. I'd participate in Bible studies. I showed up to worship. All my closest friends were Christians at this point. And I did call myself a Christian, even though I wasn't. I did lots of religious things. I talked about a lot of religious stuff. I thought a lot about Christian stuff. I was no adulterer, but I was full of lust. I was no murderer, but I was full of hate. I was no perjurer, but I was full of lies. And after trying most of the world had to offer just once, Christ in his mercy and his grace and his love got a hold of my heart. And he showed me of its blackness. He showed me how sick my sin was. How genuinely empty and alone and guilty and separated from God and Christ I really was. And Christ then awakened me. And I had faith. And I cried out in faith. And I turned from my sin and repentance. And he literally made my heart whiter than snow. He forgave all my sin. He changed my nature. He indwelt me with His Holy Spirit. And everything changed. I looked the same on the outside, but I was not the same person. Christ the King opened my eyes. He gave me new life. Christ the Lord gave me new passions. He gave me new habits, desires, wants, priorities, appetites. I was truly happy. I remember to this day... I don't know what point in time in three months that I got saved, but I was sitting in the science building of Cypress Junior College. I had a tray in my hand. I just got a French dip sandwich with au jus sauce on the side. I'm not kidding. And I'm standing about to walk back out to all my friends, one I just had shared Christ with. And I went, I'm a Christian. I'm a new person. He changed me. I don't care about that old life. He made me a new person. And since then, he, when He alone works through me by His Spirit, He's allowed me to speak and teach and do amazing things for His glory and my good, resulting in my joy and my happiness and His glory. A blessed happiness that no non-Christian will ever know. No, an abundant life that no non-believer will ever taste. Even if you claim yourself a Christian, you'll never get that. And if today you want that same happiness, I mean real joy. I'm talking about real forgiveness of all your sin, past, present, and future. An authentic new beginning. Unquestionable transformation. A real relationship with God. Then turn to Christ right now before you leave this room. Everybody can be staring at you. 
No one even has to know what's going on. It's you between you and Him and just submitting to Him. Cry out to Him. Exchange all that you are for all that He is. Submit to Christ, His work on the cross. Recognize that He died in your place. He took the punishment for your sin. He rose from the dead. He is the only Lord. He is the one you have to submit to. And you will. You'll submit to Him and bow your knee now or you'll bow your knee later. But you will bow. Talk to the Lord. Cry out to Him with an open heart right now as you sit here. And maybe today you're not ready. Instead of running away, I'd say come back next week as Christ offers each of you a radical happiness. A radical happiness. And it will be, trust me, unforgettable. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that true spirituality is internal not external. That salvation is accomplished by you, not us. That our circumstances, our situation, don't alter your work in our hearts. That even our calling is not here to try to change society, but to represent you and proclaim your gospel. Keep us humble, dependent for our marriages and our parenting and our grandparenting and, and, and being a student who wants to represent you. Keep us dependent and humble. Keep us obedient to your word, not by our own strength, but depending upon the Spirit of God. And let us worship today, not with words that we sing, but with our very lives offered to you as a living sacrifice, because you gave your life to us in a far more significant manner to die for our sin, to rise from the dead, and provide salvation for your own. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, who deserves all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.